0: The chief is on hand. He's not going to take any... Well, you know what he ain't going to take. The chief is on hand. He's not going to take you-know-what from any of you. Right. Bring it up there. We just had a fantastic argument, and I don't like to see it that way. Do you realize that right now there is brewing in this city an unbelievable potential philosophical and psychological explosion which could happen by this fall that that would just cause terrible problems to many people. And among them, Nick, you. That's right. Uh, I I suppose a lot of the innocent people out there don't realize that it is conceivable. And not only conceivable, but there are some people who are putting money on it. Like, say, several well-known bookies in Las Vegas, right, Jerry? Jerry? That the next World Series could very well be between the New York Yankees and the Dodgers. Now, this might not mean a damn thing to large numbers of you people who don't know what the implications of this are. But uh, there's going to be some real bad arguments in this town, and I'm t- there's going to be hard feelings. Which are not going to well. The last World Series that the Yankees involved themselves in, in this, uh, you know, in the modern era, the last World Series, the Yankees played who? Whom? That is correct. So that the, let's say, the uh, emotional ramifications were not there. They played St. Louis and lost in seven games. I hope you know right, uh, they did lose, but barely, and I might say also it was an exciting World Series, if you recall a World Series, do you remember that it was an exciting series? Yes, I remember, who who ended one game out here at the stadium with a shot down the left field line into the lower deck for a home run with the bases loaded? Who was that? That's a piece of trivia. Who popped one out of the park, and it was a St. Louis ball player? Who? Nope, it was not Lou Brock. I will give you a clue. He was an infielder, no longer active as a player. Huh? No, it was not Shane Deeds. This guy had power. Shane Dean's never hit for power. This guy had power, obviously, because he put one right out of the park with the bases loaded. And when you hit a home run in Yankee Stadium in left field, that's hitting the ball. He put one right out. And I was right there, and I saw that ball go out of the park. In fact, I was standing right with, I I was with, of all people at the time, I was with Phil Rizzuto. And, and uh, Rizzuto was, was sitting up in the press box. I was up in the press box. And, and I was sitting right next to him. And the minute that he swung, the minute that, you know, an old ball player like Rizzuto has these instincts, you know, the minute that, that he, he swung, Rizzuto said, it's out of here. <laughs> and the next expression was, holy cow. Huh? Who? Yeah, you go. That is correct. Ken Boyer. Yes, indeed. He put one right out of the park. And uh, was it an exciting moment? And who did he hit that home run off of? Who? Nope. (laughs) You're just wildly guessing. (laughs) That would never have happened off of him. (laughs) This guy was famous for throwing uh, a a home run ball, although he also had great moments as a pitcher. He had a curious look out on the mound, also a better than average athlete in another sport uh-huh we'll let you think about that now I don't want to do this whole show this is not a whole show on on, uh, on that but this is a this is a show about about uh, potential trouble spots that could hit who? no Bob Gibson? how could Ken Boyer hit a home run off Bob Gibson unless it was batting practice and i doubt very much whether bob gibbs have ever pitched batting practice during that world series if you're curious why i was involved and i know a lot about this particular series i was doing the color broadcast the worldwide color broadcast for the armed forces radio before the game and after the game i did the color and as a matter of fact, uh, it was broadcast worldwide. And it was the first broadcast ever made worldwide using satellite projection. In other words, it was being bounced by satellite. It was the first broadcast ever done. And it was being bounced by satellite to the Far East, to Europe, all live at the, at the time that it was actually happening. And I was out there doing the, the color. And uh, I was involved deeply in that series. Who was the? (laughs) That's got you. You guys are really worried about that pitcher, aren't you? All right, I'll I'll let you let you uh, debate this. All right, I'll ask you a question now. Uh, Who managed the Cardinals in that series? That's right. And what? uh, Who managed the Yankees? All right, Yogi was managing the Yankees in that series. Uh, What happened to Yogi immediately after the series? And what did they then do to the man? <laughs> they hired that manager. <laughs> that is true. If you, can't, if you can't beat them, join them, is the theory in that. Uh, I, uh, that was a very interesting series all the way down the line. It really was. Now, uh, now, but th- that, that's all water, you know, over the dam or under the bridge, wherever the hell you want to say it is. The, the, the potential trouble spots in the country, though, are this. That uh, this is a this is a time of uh, of year when uh, when great uh, potentialities are, are are you know showing signs of being of, of being actually realized. For example, Nick, are you aware of what it would do to Chicago if the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox participate in a World Series? It'd be the first time in history. And I might add. There is no intercity rivalry that even comes near to the Cubs versus the White Sox. Now, if you think that the old rivalry of the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Giants was something, no, no, no way, uh, because those those uh, that, that that was another. See, the thing that makes the the Cub-White Sox potentiality even greater is that the south side and the north side of Chicago are almost two philosophical worlds. It's uh, really separated philosophically, economically, racially. Uh, It's a whole big different thing. And so if the Chicago White Sox and the Chicago Cubs ever met in a World Series, I would tell you this, it would be one of the great sporting events of the 20th century. I mean, it would certainly have all kinds of of ramifications, uh, there there are other uh, there are other uh, potential things going on this year, and this is the first time in many years. The reason I'm bringing this up, and I uh, you're just going to have to indulge me in this, but the reason I bring this up is it's the first time in my memory in many years that these potentialities exist. For example, it has been a fact that during the years, uh, oh, for many many years. Uh, either one team or the other team is good or bad. In other words, uh, you know, Nick, do you know... Hey, Nick, do you know about this rivalry between the Cubs and the Sox? You do know what kind of... of, of what loaded potentialities there are in this thing. You realize, of course, it could result in riots. Uh, oh, yes, I'm very serious. I mean it. It could result in all kinds of uh, of things happening because the, the, uh, the attitude is really very, very strong between the Cubs and the White Sox. Now, this is the first time this has ever happened, that the two teams have had good chances at the pennants in their leagues that I can recall. There have been times in the past when one or the other, they had pretty fair teams, but there's a real possibility this year. Do you agree with that, Jerry? Yeah, you know, it's a definite considerable possibility. Uh, also, uh, and, and boy, that would make one fantastic television show. I can just see the opening game, let's just say for argument's sake, the opening game when the hated Cubs, for the first time in true anger, trot out on White Sox Park, what what used to be called Comiskey Field. When they come trotting out, went for like, well, it's it's... The, the the league, the American League, was formed in, what, 1900, something like that? And the National League goes back to 1870. Well, since 1900, the White Sox and the Cubs have never played in a World Series. In other words, since the inception of the league. And the the great rivalry between these two teams has not been so much that the two teams were rivals on the playing field. It was a rivalry that involved ideological differences, ideological differences, purely ideological. In other words, it's always been uh, considered in Chicago that the Cubs were the, uh, the team of the halves. This was the team of uh, the New York... It would be almost like the Yankees. They were the team that had... Uh, uh, they were sort of like the Republicans, <laughs> you know they were the the team of the establishment. Uh, they had they always had a lot of good players. They always had a lot of money. Wrigley always poured money into the team. They played in an elegant ballpark, you know beautiful Wrigley field. and it is a beautiful field. They were in a good neighborhood. Uh, up on the north side, right near the north shore, and uh, all the um, limousines would come up to see the the Cubs play ball. It was kind of the the elegant uh, Republican ball club. Whereas the White Sox, playing down on the south side, I mean, (laughs) the White Sox, it was not at all unusual for a White Sox player to demand in his contract negotiations, Nick, before the season opened, that he get a new uniform that after four years wearing the same uniform that he wanted at least a new uniform if he wasn't going to get a, a raise, you know. <laughs> that's a fact. They argued about things like that. I mean, it was really a, a, a have-not ball club. So now, all of a sudden, you have this possibility of a tremendous confrontation. It would it, And I would also say, too, that to, that this is the first year ever, I suspect, that there is a remote, it is however remote, possibility, of the Yankees and the Mets having a World Series. Now, it is remote. It is remote. Well, it was remote in 1969, or what is it? Was it 68 or 69 that the Mets won the pennant? 69, right? Uh, They weren't much better off that year at this time than they are now. No. It's the truth. They were about the same. So there is a possibility uh, and and here we we have can you imagine what kind of a series that would be the Yankees and the Mets you agree that that would be a bloody series and that the town would be split I mean fights would break out on the a train uh, <laughs> i mean I mean it would really be an exciting series and and I and I and I see the possibility this year of three different uh, Different uh, possible situations that could involve, X, uh, you know, real rivalries. As a matter of fact, there's a possibility that the Giants could win. You agree with that? Possibility that the Giants could be out here playing a World Series for the first time against, uh, you know, their, against say the Yankees. Again, on the other hand, the incredible possibility still exists. Playing, uh, you know, could very well be playing the Houston Astros. I mean, being, baseball being what it is. Now, you know, I'll tell you, uh, and, and I, I haven't done much baseball this year on my show, but I, I want to tell you something about, about the kind of rivalries uh, that, that are involved that you as a New Yorker may not be aware of. I think the New Yorker is very much aware of the fact that there have been great rivalries in the past between, uh, say, the Dodgers and the and the Yankees and the and the Giants. of course, naturally, living in New York, you'd be very aware of those. But you wouldn't be aware of the rivalries between other clubs, particularly that are almost uh, historic. You know, we, you know some of the most fantastic battles I've ever seen. I'm talking about in the stands, actually in the stands, that occurred when when uh, one of the great rivalries out in the Midwest, when when this club would show up. Uh, there would be practically, uh, well, practically, they'd have to double the police force, for example, on certain bad Sundays, like, uh, say, the July 4th Sunday, if this club was coming into town, and the two teams were, say, a half a game separated in their race for fifth place, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was very... De- who, who were those two teams? Uh, one of them was the White Sox. Who do you think was the great rival of the White Sox? you're going to automatically say the Yankees. And I'm going to say, no, that's not true. The Yankees, of course, were everybody's rivals during those periods. And so everybody hated to see, and at the same time loved to see the Yankees come to town. Uh, what was the traditional, and still remains, the traditional rival of the White Sox within their league? And they used to really have bad times out there. And the teams were quite similar at times, And uh, both teams had uh, pretty exciting ball clubs from time to time, especially the other one. And that's what drove the White Sox fans right up the wall, because these guys actually went on to win the pennant a couple of times, which really bugged the White Sox fans. And they were rooting for them to lose. Who was it? Well, I'll tell you. No, not Cleveland. Detroit. Detroit. Well, stop and think about it. These are these are two <laughs> these are two cities, and a lot of the a lot of the natives of, of Chicago, you see, had come from Detroit, uh, as they call it out there. Detroit. A lot of natives have come from Detroit to to, to to work in the steel mills of Chicago because they were also assembly line workers and stuff from Detroit. And vice versa. A lot of Chicagoans would go to Chicago. Uh, you go to go to Detroit. They'd worked in mills and one thing another, and so they. It was natural when you got out of work to go up to Detroit, which only a few hundred miles. After all, Detroit is is uh, quite close to Chicago. So they'd go up and get a, uh, get a job. So there were great numbers of White Sox fans in Detroit, and great numbers of Detroit fans in Chicago. So when Detroit would come to town. You'd see right down split right down through the middle, there would be this great roaring crowd that were all Detroit fans, and they would usually sit in their own sections. They'd get these great, and many Detroiters would make it their thing for the weekend to drive down to Chicago to see the game. They were living in Detroit. So the park would be like one third Detroit fans and two thirds Chicago fans. And they were bitter. I mean <laughs> really bitter, wild the uh, Fantastic events would break out, and I remember one sitting in, in the stands. I'm a kid when I saw a really great scene occur. I'm, I'm uh, the old man, never missed uh, Detroit when Detroit would come to town. He, he you know, he, he, was a, he was born a White Sox fan the way many people are born uh, Catholics. Uh, here in New York, many people are born either Orthodox or Reformed Jews, right? Well, my old man was born a White Sox fan, and that was his religion. And uh, he believed in the White Sox, and he was, he was constantly disillusioned by his religion, just the way many other religionists are disillusioned by theirs, Nick. You realize the same things were going on. He measured good and evil by uh, what was happening to the White Sox. Uh, and and uh, his pope, if you're curious who his pope was, he had a pope, and, and it was Jimmy Dykes. Uh, who is at that, ta- at that time, when I was a little kid, was managing the White Sox. And uh, whatever Dykes would say would be a source of great argument among all the White Sox fans, just like uh, when the Pope makes some kind of a dogmatic uh, uh, an announcement or an encyclical or something. There's always great theological splits. You agree that there's the, uh, that there's the true believer who will accept it, then there's the uh, reformed one who argues, and then, you know, it's all all mixed up. Well, that's what would happen. Uh, Jimmy Dykes would say something like, uh, well, we had to trade him. It looked like he wasn't going to come around. Well, at that point, there would be great arguments within the ranks of the White Sox true believers as to whether or not to accept Dykes' word that he must know something that none of us know, or, that damn Dykes done it again! And then there would be this great argument, uh, all based in St. On the on the premise, of course, that the White Sox were the only team that counted. Well, when uh, when in the course of the ordinary uh, American League schedule, it would appear that the Detroit Tigers were scheduled to play a doubleheader in Comiskey Park on a Sunday. This preparations would be made for like a month in advance. Guys would go down to Comiskey Park. They'd call up. They'd write. They'd phone to get tickets. And these were always giant sellouts, even when the teams were playing like, uh, you know, both of them were, down in the cellar. Didn't matter, because the minute they got out on the field, something was going to happen. There was no love lost between these teams. And at one point, the White Sox bought an outfielder, a hated outfielder from <laughs> from the Detroit Tigers, and he moved over to the Chicago White Sox. He was a good outfielder, good hitter, very colorful player. Who was that? And, it, and at the peak of his career. And it caused fantastic uproars. Well, it, it, in present-day terms, it would be the same thing. Who would you consider is an arch Met? Would you say Seaver? Or would you say Crane Pool? Well, not Crane because he isn't that colorful or that important. Let's say uh, Seavers, right? You know, Seavers is a pretty big guy. What would happen to, locally, if tomorrow morning, without any warning, it was announced that Tom Seaver was sold to the Yankees? Do you agree that there would be considerable hollering and arguing and yelling in the press? There would be one crowd would be cheering. <laughs> Another crowd would be demanding immediate abdication of the entire management of the uh, Shea Stadium denizens, as they're always referred to in the Post. Uh, do you agree, Nick, that this would cause considerable... Uh, uh, it would be a schism. A, a definite religious war would, de, would develop in this town, or at least the, uh, the beginnings of one. I mean, uh, it, uh, it would cause... Well, this is what happened. An outfielder moved right from center field in the in the in Detroit, and he was a top one, and he moved to chicago and In the course of this, two very highly valued and admired Chicago White sox pitchers were sent to Detroit just without any warning and there was no pre advanced warning you see there had been nothing in the papers that said uh, the White sox are planning a deal with detroit uh it looks like uh A big lefty McGonagall is about to go on the block. Nothing like that. It was just out of the blue. One morning, the old man got the Chicago Tribune, and I remember what had happened. You know, he would go out on the back porch and get the paper every morning, right? The kid would come on, throw the paper, drive right along through the alley, toss the papers up on the back porch. Well, the old man went out on the back porch, Nick, to get his paper. And I'm a kid. I come into the kitchen, you know. My mother's hanging over the sink. She's making the Rice Krispies and stuff like that. The old man takes the papers, all rolled up. See, he you know, rolls it. Well, he he had a, he had an automatic way of doing. It. He would automatically unroll the paper, no matter what was on the front page. He would automatically go to the first page of the sports section to see, you know, the the, the sports section. God, hey, he would go back and read the other part of the paper later on. So he automatically turns to the sport page. I'm a kid. I'm walking in from the john, and I hear. What the hell is this? What the hell is this? And he looks at the paper, and he, he's pounding. He what the hell? Hey, and he jumps up, and he runs into the phone. Now, it's what? It's 7.30 in the morning. The old man never made phone calls before he went to work. You know, he went to work about at 8.30, and usually before, you know, before 8.30, before he left to go to work, he was always in a state of semi-shock. He would, uh, you know, he would shave, he would drink his coffee and look mad and smoke a couple of Lucky Strikes and finally say, all right, I'll be home at at six and go staggering out. Well, he rushes into the phone, he picks up the phone, and you can hear him in the next room. Hey, Zudok, did you look at a paper? Will you get the paper? Take a look at it. You won't believe it. Take a look at the paper. All right? You got the sport page? Look at that. What the hell is that about? And you hear this big argument going. And he hangs up. He comes back and see he was alerting all the other White Sox fans that a fantastic thing had happened. That would be just like if, if uh, you know, if you can imagine, if all the, all, you know, all the guys in the seminaries, all the priests, all of a sudden, without any warning, uh, out of the Vatican it comes that all the, not only can a priest get married if he wants to. He can, uh, you know, he can uh, live in sin with anybody he cares to, and furthermore, <laughs> you know, I mean, that would be great argument. So, with that, the comes running back. They had bought this outfielder from the Detroit Tigers. Well, to give you a basic uh, d- description of what it was like, do you remember when the Dodgers were at their very peak? Can you imagine what it would have been like if in the middle of this fantastic thing it was announced without any warning that Joe DiMaggio was sold to the Dodgers overnight. That would have caused some talk, wouldn't it? And more than that, Gil Hodges <laughs> Gil Hodges was sent over to the Yankees and in addition to that they sent Carl Ferrillo along with him And uh, Johnny Padres, there would have been some talk, Uh, especially if it was happening right down on the Pennant Drive. See, well, anyway, uh, you know, the old man was really bugged. Oh, my God. Well, this led to one of the greatest uproars I have ever seen in a ballpark. That it so happened that within two weeks, and boy, the papers, you know, every sports column took pro and con. One column says, uh, that was a great trade they made. Another column says, uh, we ought to demand a congressional investigation. That obviously there's been payola. Obviously somebody is, uh, uh, there must be ties to Las Vegas. They're, they're really, you know, all kinds of implications. And all the while the fans are seething. And I'm about, you know, I'm about nine years old. I don't know what the hell's going on except that something terrible happened with the White Sox. And so, on this particular fantastic afternoon, now, you know, I wonder, I just wonder, what kids, you know, when you watch the ball games today, if you ever watch uh, games coming from Shea Stadium, and uh, the the, uh, camera, you know, moves around between innings and immediately picks up kids sitting down there, and there's always a... You know, about a thousand kids sitting around with uh, with Met batting helmets, and they always wave up. You know, and they put immediately put up their sign. Uh, we Hawkin loves Ed Crane Pool. You know, these vapid signs. Uh, they're always doing this kind of stuff. Well, I'm I'm interested in one aspect of that, and it's never been nobody's ever brought this up. What kind of memories are those kids going to have about going to the ballpark, say, 25 years from now? They will remember it, you know. And will they tell people about it? And what kind of... You know, they're obviously having a great time, but it's a different kind of a time they're having than, say, the adults that are with them. You will buy that, won't you, Jerry? After all, being a kid, uh, you get all different kinds of things, and you don't see a lot of the things that an adult sees. But then, on the other hand, you see a lot of things that adults don't see. So... Uh, Twenty-five years from now, there's going to be guys sitting around. Oh, I'll never forget, you know, going out to Shea and uh, me and my friend Aki. You know, those the, the, back in them days, I was living in Plainfield, you know, and uh, all of us we were in this Cub Scout troop, and, and uh, gee, I'll never forget, uh, we had this uh, Little League ball team, and uh, one time they decided they were all going to go out to Shea and uh, you know, and he'll, he'll tell this whole story. Say, well, i in, in a sense, this is exactly what I'm doing because we, you know, everybody is always getting memories as he goes along through life. And don't confuse this at all with nostalgia. It's it's uh, it's the fact that kids sitting at Shea right now, or at the Yankee Stadium, or uh, wherever they might be going, are are perceiving a lot of things about an event, and it's an event. That's a great big event, you know, there may be 40,000 people there. And there aren't many times in your life when you're sitting in the middle of, say, 75,000 people or 40,000 people and your old man is involved, you know. So, we went out, uh, we went out on the Sunday and uh, the old man had gotten tickets to to, to this Detroit doubleheader. And uh, it was right after this big trade. And uh, it, was, it was a very big, still big issue with the old man and all these, all these White Sox fans uh, who, who were deeply involved with the team. And so on that Sunday, this tremendous crowd began to converge. I remember we drove up, you know, all along the parking streets. Well, just like in the Bronx today, uh, as you drive along, there's always kids out there waving a paper, all right, come on, park here, park here, let's go, a dollar for parking in the ball game." and uh, there's guys watching the cars and all that stuff, so we drove into a, a lot the old man always used, he had a regular lot he would drive into, see, so uh, he drives in, there's this kid, and then we drive the olds in, we pile out, and we join this fantastic throng, me and my kid brother, and my mother, and the old man. This tremendous throng moving into the ballpark. And it was the first time that I ever saw banners at ballparks. You know, ba- the banner idea is not new. Banners have been used before. I can tell you, I can attest to this. And they, people were carrying great big flags and stuff. You know, the old man was hollering, you know, everybody was, you know, all these White Sox fans are moving in there. and It was a very different feeling than i had ever seen before. You know, usually when you go into a ballpark, everybody's, uh, you know, they're happy. They're walking around buying scorecards and, uh, you know, buying an ice cream cone and a beer before the game. No way, man. This this crowd was moving in there with a purpose. You know, you had a vague feeling like you were going to some kind of a vast demonstration. Now, I had never been to anything like this. And so our tickets were in the upper deck. We had... There were four or five different categories of tickets. You know, you could get bleacher seats. You could get uh, box seats. Uh, just like, you know, out at, the, out at Shea, you could get reserve seats. You could get uh, uh, general admission so on. But we had what they call reserve seats, which were back of third base, or reserve seats, back of third base in the upper deck. Now, you could look right down into the first base dugout from where we were sitting, but you couldn't look into the third base dugout because you were above it, so you could just see the top of the dugout down there, below there. Well, the White Sox dugout was the third base dugout at that time. They, that's where they, the home team dugout was. The first base dugout was the visiting team, and so we're looking down into the visiting team dugout, so we could see all these, all these Detroit Tigers walking around down there. Well, well, we we, we got into this into the seats. See, well, right away, as soon as we get into the seats, the old man orders a, a beer. You know, and the crowd is 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 moving in. We're about twenty minutes early, and a couple of groundskeepers are out there, and already the fans are beginning to holler. They're hollering stuff like. Hey Dikes! Are you scared to show your face, you bum? Well, they're hollering stuff like that. See, because Dikes was the manager, he always—he was famous for always, like Ralph Hawk, he would always stand on a parapet, right? So, he know, no, Dikes doesn't show. Well, the crowd is hollering, and, and one by one, you can see ballplayers coming in down into the Detroit, the Detroit uh, dugout. Well, then, as the, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the time got closer to the ball game time, it was quite obvious. I mean, it was one of the biggest crowds I've ever seen in a ballpark. As a matter of fact, uh, do you remember when they used to have things called field crowds? Do you ever hear of a field crowd when they set up, when they put people literally down on the field and they set up a fence like down there and they have standing room down on the field and if, if, the, if the ball is hit into the crowd, it's a ground rule double? Goes right. Well, they did. They actually had people down along the left, right by the left field foul line. They put people down in there, and they put people down on the right field foul line. I mean, there must have been sixty-five thousand people at that ball game, and it was hot. It was, it was, it was one of those hot, muggy uh, mid-August days that you get in the Midwest. Temperature was like ninety-five degrees, humidity one hundred and seven, uh, and right from the beginning. The, the, the Detroit pitcher walked out on the mound, and you could hear this this rhythmic clapping began. That's how it started with this. You ever been in the, in a crowd when they start the rhythmic clapping business? When when you hear this crowd going, clap, 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 on every pitch it was going, clap, clap, clap. And the pitcher's walking around out there, you know, kicks the dirt. He's supposed to get the pitcher a bug. Well, it really did. This pitcher's out there walking around, throws this First pitch in, and the crowd started to roar, and this clapping is going on. First pitch is a ball, if I remember right. Well, about five minutes into the game, the first incident erupted. One of the White Sox ball players laid down a bunt down to just laid it down, beautiful bunt down the first baseline. He takes off, and the pitcher comes charging over to field the ball. Well, the two guys collide right there, you know. Crash they go the the runner goes down, the pitcher goes down at that point. the first baseman picks the ball up, tags the runner out, and instantly the stand erupts, you know one crowd. Uh, hollered that the runner interfered with the pitcher. The other crowd hollered that the pitcher interfered with the runner. Uh, one crowd said that the, that the player should get first base because he was interfered with. Another crowd hollered that he should be out automatically because he interfered with the pitcher fielding the ball. And right away it erupted. And the umpire the umpire signals out. Well, the crowd with a fantastic roar. And my old man jumps up and he hollers, Hey, get out there and fight Dykes! They're not going to pull out of you! Hey, Dykes! He's mad at Dykes, who was the manager. Dykes did not run out on the field. Well, about halfway now through the third inning, the game is progressing along. It's getting hotter and hotter. Somebody slid into second base. It was a White Sox player whose name is lost in history except that the event which occurred that immediately followed his sliding into second base, ranks now today with the burning of Chicago as a chief source of Chicago mythology. You heard about the burning of Chicago, I trust, O'Leary's cow and all that stuff. Well, this was very close. It is the third inning. The two teams are scoreless, nothing to nothing, there have been a number of very, very close decisions, very controversial decisions. The crowd is now clapping rhythmically on every pitch. There have been at least five fist fights, sporadic fights break out in the audience, and you know they, they have you ever been in a, a crowd when fights are breaking out you could see one over there back at third base, one back out in right field and you see the cops converge. Well, at this moment there is a runner on first base The runner goes immediately upon the pitch. The White Sox hitter hits a slow, bounding ball down towards third base. Now, you got the scene? The runner moves on the pitch. He hits a slow, bounding ball. I can see the scene in my eye. It was a fantastic, dramatic moment. The third baseman comes charging in, feels the ball. Now he has a choice. Is he going to go to second for the runner? who went on the pitch or is he gonna go to first and play it safe well he played for second only one problem he didn't have a good handle on the ball so there was a brief pause he whips that ball down to the second base beautiful throw right on the bag. that ball goes in and the runner comes sliding in exactly the same time the second baseman feels that ball sweeps across the runner, and in so doing, his hands went high, and he hit the Chicago White Sox runner before 56,000 fans, he hit him right in the left jaw, right under the ear with the ball. <laughs> he just hit him, tagging him, see? Well, at that point, the runner jumps up, and he swung, I never saw anything like it in the ballpark, he just swung, and he hit this, this second baseman, it was a shortstop, actually, he hit the shortstop, one of the most fantastic right hooks I have ever seen outside of a prize ring. He hit him right, I mean, right in the eye. That guy went down like a sack of cement. Just pow, down he went. No words, he just got up and hit him. Down he went. Well, that instant, it was like, the, it was like, like nuclear fission had occurred. Both teams came charging out of the dugouts, both of them, just like, 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 like two lines... Of, of of football players yeah, you know, it looked like football line they weren't even in, 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 in rough formation they just jumped out they just charged out and they hit right in the middle of the diamond around the pitcher's mouth and engulfed the pitcher <laughs> they just hit like that they just, two waves the, the gray uniforms of Detroit The the traveling uniforms, the white socks, white uniforms with the big SOX on the front. They both hit right in the middle of the diamond. And I mean every member of the squad was out there. There were 50 guys fighting it out, and I mean slugging it out in the heat. They were rolling around. The trainers were out. Each trainer was fighting the trainer from the other club. I never saw anything like it. The umpires were out running around trying to pull these guys apart. No way. Umpires were laying on the ground. Fans started to pour out. The police were out there. And for over 45 minutes, the Chicago White Sox and the Detroit Tigers forgot all about baseball. They were involved in a pure fistfight. I mean, they were carrying guys off the field, their uniforms ripped off, God's with... And the old man is jumping up, you know, and he's shouting, Hey, Dykes, get after that guy! The old man was after Dykes. They kept yelling at Dykes to go fistfight with the manager of the Detroit Tigers. (laughs) So all I got to say, Prince, is the following. That any time two group of grown men who are professionals take to the arena... With the avowed object of proving which one is going to best the other, the potentials are endless. You'll concede, Nick. All I got to say is that if at the end of this summer, the Yankees play the Dodgers, God knows what'll happen. If the White Sox play the Cubs, my God, who knows? We've got an interesting fall.